Well, welcome everyone to the fourth week of our series, the title of which is on the screen, Mind Games, How to Think For and About Yourself. So I will uh, bring you up to speed uh, with a bit of a review in a, in a minute. But before I get into that, I wanted to uh, reiterate some of the announcements that we gave in the first hour very quickly. This Friday is the Mud Hens game. So today is the day for you to get your tickets for the Mud Hens. Friday night, Toledo Mud Hens. We've got tickets in the Resource Center. The Resource Center is out that back door and across the hall. They're $10 each. We always have a great time at the game itself and fellowshipping with each other. There's a fireworks display after the game. But to start the game, a group from our church is singing the national anthem. So that'll be an extra treat this year. So I'd encourage you all to come. If you don't have your tickets yet, you need to get them uh, today in the Resource Center. So that's the Mud Hens game on Friday. Two weeks from today, during the refreshment time, uh, there'll be a 15-minute meeting uh, in one of the adult rooms, again, out that back door and across the hall, for Stephen Ministry. And we have a big paragraph in your program today about what Stephen Ministry is. So read that paragraph. If that's something that you're uh, interested in, then plan on attending that 15-minute informational meeting two weeks from today. And then the weekend of the 21st, Friday the 21st and the 22nd, there are a few different things going on. The 21st, that evening, ladies, is the ladies' late nighter. So here, there's going to be food and uh, refreshments and table games. And uh, starting at 7 o'clock, ladies, then uh, come uh, and what you're asked to bring is included in the blurb in the program. And uh, you can stay as late or as little as you, you would like. So there's no kind of end time on that. It's not quite all night, but it's late night. So it's called the ladies' late nighter. So be aware of that. Friday night, the uh, 21st. That next day, Saturday the 22nd, the men have a canoe trip. So guys, there's going to be a canoe trip. The details for that will be given to you uh, next week. But just mark your calendars for Saturday the 22nd and that uh, one-day canoe trip for the guys. And lastly... On our announcements, I'm very glad to be able to announce that our daycare and preschool that we've been planning for and getting approvals for and all of that is slated to begin on September the 8th. September the 8th, that's the day after Labor Day, so Tuesday, September the 8th, Community Kids uh, Daycare and Preschool will open its doors. So if you have a child that is infant up through K, then uh, we're opening our doors to them. You need to send an email to communitykids at cbctrenton.com, communitykids at cbctrenton.com, and um, you can get information about enrolling. And um, uh, tell other people, even if you don't have kids in that age group, or if you do, even if you do, let other people know about the Community Kids Daycare and Preschool. All right, let me review as quickly as I can what we've covered in the first few weeks about the Mind Game series. I have stated that we tend to, most of us, focus on behavior as the primary indications as to whether or not we're growing in the Lord. Behavior. That is, we focus on our external actions. And so if I'm reformed on the outside, then I'm good to go. If I conform to what everybody else is doing, then I'm as good as everybody else. And if I'm using them as the benchmark, then I'm growing and I've grown in the Lord. 
because my external actions are not what they used to be, and they are, um, they are uh, in fact, better than they used to be. And that kind of external outward conformity can happen fairly quickly. In fact, in my experience and observation, when I look at the lives of individuals, that's what I, that's what I see. They come to the Lord, and in a relatively quick period of time, some of the habits, external actions that they used to do, they get rid of. And there's then genuine growth in, in that. And one uh, author has uh, illustrated that by using uh, a garden as an illustration of the Christian life. That when you come to Christ, your life is like this uncultivated garden. And it's got hard ground in it that needs to be broken up and softened. And it has stones and uh, weeds and all of that that need to be uh, taken uh, taken out. And so these things, you start working on those things. And the good news about the weeds and the stones is they're pretty obvious, especially the large ones. So there's some stuff in my life that I used to do I need to get rid of. So toss those large boulders out of this would-be garden. And then those weeds, start getting those weeds out of there. And after about a year of plowing through that, you know, I've got better behavior than I had before. And my behavior is similar to the people that I hang out with on Sundays now at church. And so I've conformed to what everybody else is doing. But after that, the growth slows down considerably if it's not completely stunted. It grows down, slows down considerably. Usually within that first year, maybe, maybe two years. And one of the reasons that it slows down or stops altogether is because... What's there left to do? I got rid of all the big stuff. I got rid of all the all the obvious stuff in my life. I'm pretty much at least on the outside like everybody else, and everybody else seems to be satisfied with what we're like on the outside. So what's left? And another reason that that growth either stops or slows down considerably is because I'm already going to heaven. If I've trusted Jesus as my Savior, my ticket to heaven's already been punched. So why do I have to really care about getting to the root of my heart issues and going deeper than the surface of getting rid of these large and obvious external behavioral things in my life? Why do I, why should I care about that? And I'm afraid that that's the way many of us, many of us think. And as a result of that, growth doesn't take place as deeply and as often as it should. Now I shared with you a few weeks ago what I call the anatomy of action. If we're focused on external behavior, if we're focused on our outward actions, we need to understand that what comprise our actions, the things we do, actually go much deeper than the act itself. That accompanying and most often preceding a particular action are the things that I say, my words. Either I say them audibly or most often I'm thinking those words to myself. So if I really want to reform my behavior, I'm going to have to work on something deeper than that and something more ubiquitous than that. I just like to say ubiquitous. I don't know what that means. More prevalent than just your actions are your words. And our words are all the time, as I say, whether audibly or just in the recesses of our minds. And so I'm going to have to think about what I'm saying audibly or and, and saying to myself 
if I'm really going to change my behavior the way I should. But behind those words are thoughts. So the anatomy of action is, yes, the external outward thing that I do, but preceding that are the things I say audibly or to myself, but preceding the things I say are the things I think. So if I really want to get to the root of what's going on with me, I need to think about how I think. I need to think about the stuff that goes through my mind and then comes out in my words and then is expressed in my behavior. And then actually underlying that at the very bottom, according to the Bible, is my desires. What do I want? My desires. So desires, thoughts, words, actions. And if you're someone who's then content with just dealing with actions, you're not getting to the root that bears that that fruit in your life. And this is why I'm doing a series called then Mind Games. Because I want us to begin to think about that level of what's going on in my mind as I think about myself, as I think about my circumstances, as I think about other other people, as I think about God. Now, as we then delve back into that, this issue of how we think, uh, let me remind you or inform you that your mind is more than just your brain. Did you know that? That the mind is not merely physical. The mind is not biblically just your gray matter. So the way I think is not just a matter of the synapses and the chemicals firing in my brain. That's all part of the wiring, but it's only part of it. Biblically, my thoughts are generated, yes, by my, by my brain, yes, by that physical activity, but that physical activity is acted upon by a spiritual activity. That biblically, the mind is the combination of the physical brain, but the, but the immaterial spirit as well. It's both of those. So from a biblical standpoint, as we think about our thoughts and whether or not those thoughts are the kinds that we saw in Psalm 42 and 43, where the psalmist is down and he's thinking negative thoughts about his situation and where God has left him. But then in the midst of that, in Psalm 42 and verse 5, he talks to himself, he comes to himself and he says, Why are you downcast, my soul? When that's happening, it's not just a physical activity. That's a spiritual act as well. The spirit is acting upon your brain. Or your spirit is acting upon your brain in a negative way. To produce those kinds of woe is me sorts of thoughts. This is why from a biblical standpoint then, medication can be a very good thing to help what's going on physically in the gray matter. But medication is not the only thing. Medication can be a very good thing, but it's not the only thing. Your thoughts are always a spiritual matter in addition to, in addition to a physical matter. Now, how do I know that? The Bible says things like in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, Romans 8 and verse 7. The carnal mind, the natural mind, that is the mind outside of 
Christ is at war against God. The natural mind is at war against God and it does not submit to God's law, neither can it do so, the Bible says. Now, that's not just your physical brain. You know, the Bible would not, you know, if you've got a broken leg, have you ever read in the Bible, you know, having a broken leg is sinful? It's, you haven't because it's not. So the Bible doesn't criticize having something physical that's not working right. When the Bible is condemning the mind that is at war with God, that's a spiritual issue that it's condemning. Or you take Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. Jeremiah 17, 9. It speaks of the, the heart of man. Some translations say the mind, but the heart is the seat of the, the self's thinking process. And it says it's deceitful. And beyond cure, who can know it, the Bible says. Or the Bible says positively things like Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Colossians 3 and verse 2, set your minds. Anybody remember? On things above, not on earthly things. So the thinking process and the mind are spiritual matters. What I meditate upon, what I ruminate about, is not just a physical matter. And it's certainly not a small matter. It's a huge matter to the Lord God. As to how my mind is used and whether or not the spirit is controlling my mind. Or my sinful nature is controlling my mind. So the Bible has antidotes throughout for negative kinds of thinking about ourselves, about our circumstances, about God. You've got passages like Psalm 42 and 43 that I mentioned, Colossians 3, 2, Philippians 4, 8. Philippians 4, 8. Whether there be anything uh, virtuous, whether there be anything excellent, and it goes on with a list of these positive qualities. Whether there's anything praiseworthy, then the end of Philippians 4, 8 says, think on these things. Train yourself to think in that direction. So as we think about thinking, and as we see that our thoughts give rise to our words, and our words precede our actions, so if we really want to get to the root of change so that we can become conformed to the image of Jesus, if we want to get to the root of that, then i got to get to the root of the way I think, and the way I think is not just a physical matter. It's more than that. It's a spiritual matter as, as well. That's why psychology, the word psychology means literally this, the study of the soul. The Greek word suke, from which we get psychology. But suke is used in your New Testament, it's translated soul. So psychology is the study of the soul. Well, the soul's more than just matter. And it's more than just gray matter. But it involves immatter as well, the immaterial as well. All right. So with all of that, I said last week that truth should characterize our thoughts. Truth should characterize our deliberations. So that when we are thinking negative things about ourselves, it's very easy for us to lie to ourselves about ourselves. 
I can't do anything right. Okay? Now, is that really true? Like, have you never done anything right? Like, you're at church right now. And you're sitting here. And you're, you're, you're convincing me you're listening. Now, you might not be. But you're attempting to convince me that you're listening. And you're doing it right. Here you are sitting there listening or at least doing a good job of acting like you're listening. Now, all of that is stuff that you did right. Just today, you've done stuff right. So stop lying. Stop lying to yourself when you say, I never do anything right. And I gave you the illustration last week of my youngest daughter. And Annie, when she was little, was prone to melancholy. And she would have those kinds of thoughts about herself. And I was very stark with her about it. I said, Annie, we don't let people lie here. You can't lie. You've got to tell the truth. So when you say things like, I'm so dumb, that's a lie. It's not true. So it's not just negative. It's not just harmful. I wanted to up the ante on that and say, Annie, you're a big fat liar. You feel better? Daddy's just here to help. But, you know, putting it in that stark way to her said, wow, I've really got to think about how I think. I've really got to think about whether the statements I make about myself are true. And whether the statements I make about other people now are true. Even if those statements are only made in my mind. Which is what I'd like to get to today. We need to speak in our minds. We need to think truthfully. We need to speak to ourselves truthfully. But we also need to speak to ourselves humbly. Humbly. Now, what do I mean when I say we need to think, speak to ourselves in humble ways? Here's what I mean. We need to be very, very, very careful about drawing conclusions regarding other people and their motivations when we don't know what those motivations are. And yet, let's be honest, we do it all the time, and some of us more than others. Some people are fixated on other people, and they're thinking to themselves all the time, why'd they do that? Or why didn't they do this? I wonder, you know, I wonder why pastor didn't say hello to me. And there, are a lot of re- there could be a lot of reasons for that, right? I mean, one, pastor's a jerk. Okay, I mean, we're thinking we're talking hypothetically about some other pastor, not okay. But li- but listen, if you're already if you're already you're already ticked at pastor a little bit. Now, pastor not saying hi to you moves from, you know, pastor's busy. That's another reason. Or pastor's got a lot on his mind on Sunday morning. Go figure. Two, pastor's a jerk. You can go to that pretty quickly if you're not careful. And think about all the things you can do that with. You can look at an action of someone and you can place an interpretation on that action that is the most negative interpretation rather than what the Bible commands us to do. Put the most positive interpretation on someone's actions until they prove otherwise. 
Now, let me say that again. Put the most positive interpretation on someone's actions until they prove otherwise. You will save yourself and others a lot of heartache if you will practice that. Let me read you an illustration. I knew he was too proud to take criticism, thought Anne. And now I have proof. On the previous Sunday, Anne had dropped a prayer card in the offering plate asking her pastors to stop in and pray with her when she went to the hospital for some minor surgery. When he failed to come by, she called the church secretary and learned that her pastor had already been to the hospital that day to see another church member. So he has no excuse, she thought. He was in the building and he knew I needed his support. But still he ignored me. Now this is all going on in her mind. Still, he ignored me. He's resented me ever since I told him his sermons lack practical application. And now he's getting back at me by ignoring my spiritual needs. And he calls himself a shepherd. And after brooding over his rejection for three days, Anne sat down Saturday evening and wrote a letter confronting her pastor about his pride, defensiveness, and hypocrisy. As she sealed the envelope, she could not help thinking about the conviction he's going to feel when he opens his mail. And the moment she walked into church the next morning, one of the deacons hurried over to her, Anne, I need to apologize to you. When I took the prayer cards out of the offering plates last week, I accidentally left your card with some pledge cards. I didn't notice my mistake until last night when I was totaling the pledges. I'm so sorry I didn't get your request to the pastor. Before Anne could reply to the deacon, her pastor approached her with a warm smile. That's what we pastors do. (laughs) And he said, Anne, I was thinking about your comment about practical application as I finished my sermon yesterday. I hope you noticed the difference in today's message. Anne was speechless. All she could think about was the letter she had just dropped in a mailbox, mailbox three blocks from church. You say, wow, isn't that something? Yep. And I said, you know, hypothetically, another pastor, I'm just going to say this. I'm just going to say this, and then I'm going to move on, because this is not about a personal thing. That thing I read to you, I got from Peacemaker Ministries, so I didn't make that up for myself. But I have had that scenario happen to me and to my wife multiple times in the last six months. Multiple times. I'm not going to dwell on that. But I am telling you that that is not just a fictional story. I have had my actions interpreted in the most negative way. And my wife has had her actions interpreted in the most negative way. And here's the thing. If you got a problem with me, then the problem... Maybe me. Or it may be you. But if you've got a problem with Kim, the problem's you. <laughs> and everybody who knows Kim's nodding their head. Now she's back there all embarrassed. But the truth is, if you've got a problem with Kim, you've got a problem. If you've got a problem with me, you may have a problem. Or you may have a point. Okay? <laughs> Now, I'm off of that. But I'm, I'm telling you that, though, because I am telling you 
Brothers and sisters, that's how serious this kind of thing is. People can look at something you do and put whatever spin you want to in the recesses of your mind, can't you? Can't we? And if you're ticked at that person for whatever reason, now the wheels are turning and you can interpret it in the most vicious way possible. The Bible tells us that we cannot make those kinds of judgments about one another. We cannot. And we cannot because our thinking has to be humble. It has to be truthful, but it also has to be humble. And the humility part of it is this. I can't know what I don't know. I don't have a sixth sense about why you did what you did. I don't know why when we passed each other in the hallway, I didn't say hi to you or you didn't say hi to me. I don't know the answer to that. So since I don't know the answer to that, guess what? The Bible commands me don't draw a conclusion about it. Now, where does the Bible command that? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4. In verse 3, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 3. This is Paul, of course, writing to the Corinthians. And he says to them, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. Now, just stop there and think about that. Here's the great apostle saying, look, I know you all make all kinds of judgments about me. And in fact, his second letter to the Corinthians, if you've ever had a chance to read through the 13 chapters of his second letter to the Corinthians, it is all about Paul defending his ministry to the Corinthians. It's all about that. And it's all about the criticisms that they have for him and him explaining his ministry to them. So here in the first letter, he's saying, you know, I know you all make lots of judgments and I can deal with that. I care very little. Not that I don't care at all, but I care very little. If I'm judged by you or any human court, in fact, I can't even judge myself. As I search my own motivations, my conscience is clear, verse 4. But even that does not make me innocent. Why? Because I don't know the recesses of all of my motivations, do I? Now, think about it. If you can't know your own motivations, how well can I know your motivations? And the answer is I can't. You can't know your own motivations. I certainly can't know them. So then he goes on. That does not make me innocent. Middle of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And will expose, now notice this, the motives of men's hearts. You know who's able to see your motivation and my motivation? One person and one person only, and that's God Almighty. 
And when I look at what you do and I attach a motivation to that, I am usurping something that belongs only to God. And I am taking a position of pride that says, I have the ability to do this. Oh, I know why you did that. Oh, I got your number. Yeah. Me and you. How does it go? <laughs> but I got you, okay? I'm on it. I know your game. I know what you're about. And God says, no, you don't. So how does this whole evaluation, critiquing, judging issue work practically in our lives? When the Bible is saying very clearly... I don't have the ability to judge somebody's motives. Only God can do that. So does that mean I can't judge anything about another person? And so I'd like to take a few moments to deal with that. How on the one hand do I make, can I make judgments at all? And if I can, how do I make appropriate judgments? And keep from slipping into judging somebody's motivations, which the Bible says I can't do. So how do I how do I do all this? Well, I won't have you turn there, but if you some of you are taking notes, if you care to jot down Matthew chapter seven, Matthew chapter seven. And Matthew seven and verse one is this famous passage in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. We went through the Sermon on the Mount last year. Matthew five, six and seven, chapter seven of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins by saying, judge not. That you be not judged. And then he goes on to talk about that famous illustration of you dealing with the speck in your brother's eye while you've got a beam coming out of your head. And so it's this hideous illustration of Jesus saying, you're going to try to pull the speck out of somebody's eye. Hey, let me get that for you. But you can't get close enough to get the speck because you got this beam Sticking out of your own head because you've got some obvious issues yourself. Deal with your stuff first, says Jesus. For the judgment with which you judge others, you yourself will be judged, Jesus says. Now, many have taken that to be their life verse. Nobody can ever criticize me about anything because Jesus said, judge not or you'll be judged. So you can't judge anything. I know I'm committing adultery, but... You can't judge that. I know you saw me stealing, but you can't judge that. I know you saw me drunk the other day. I'm giving just these obvious things, right? But Jesus says, judge not. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. How do I know? How do I know that Jesus is not saying you can never make a judgment about overtly sinful actions or overtly sinful words? How do I know he's not saying that? Because in Matthew chapter 7, when you get down to verse number 6, so verses 1 through 5, Jesus talks about this judge not that you be not judged, hypocritical kinds of judgment. But then he gets to verse 6 and he talks about judging false teachers, evaluating false teachers. Now think about this. How do you know a teacher is false unless you make a judgment? I remember being at lunch years ago with a guy. He had visited the church maybe once. 
And I forget the occasion as to why we were there, but Emily Rapp, Emily, you were there. I don't know if you remember this, but the guy sitting across from me uh, was talking about some teacher on television, I think, and asking me what I thought about this TV preacher. So let me just warn you. Usually if you come to me and say, what do you think about so-and-so TV preacher? It's usually not much. Okay, that's usually my answer. Okay. I don't know all the TV preachers, but most of them aren't very good, the ones I do know. So I'll just tell you that. So this person was asking me about Joel Osteen or somebody, I don't know. And so I said, you know, I I really don't think he's true to the word. And then, you know, the the conversation went to, well, you know, you can't judge. Well, one, you asked me what I thought. (laughs) Okay. But then, two, I said, you know, the Bible warns about teaching... uh, evaluating false teachers. So how could you possibly evaluate false teachers, I said to them, if you can't make any judgment at all? And he said, my philosophy has always been to let your, quote, let your, let your conscience be your guide. And I remember Emily piping in and saying, I think that's the gospel according to Jiminy Cricket. (laughs) As only Emily could say. Because, <laughs> you know, let your conscience be your guide ain't in the Bible. And that is something Jiminy Cricket said. Okay? So people move from judge not to mean I can't evaluate anything. And if I can't evaluate anything, then I can't obey multiple verses of the Bible that say to evaluate false teachers and false teaching. Further, John chapter 7 and verse 24. John 7, 24. John 7, 24. This is Jesus. And here's the quote. Judge righteous judgment. That's what he says. Judge righteously. What Jesus was condemning in Matthew 7 was not judging. It was a particular type of judging, hypocritical judging. And in John seven twenty four, he says, judge righteous judgment. The same Jesus who gave the Sermon on the Mount. And further, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 15. 1 Corinthians 2, 15. In 1 Corinthians 2, 15, Paul says this. The spiritual man judges all things. Makes an evaluation of all things. So the Bible repeatedly tells us that we have to make evaluations, that we have to make judgments about things people teach. We have to make judgments about behavior. If somebody is sinning, the Bible says to us we need to, as brothers and sisters, confront that sin. How could I ever obey? Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if you see a brother caught in a sin, You who are spiritual seek to restore him. You guys remember that? How am I going to restore anybody if I'm not able to look and say, look, you're in sin? So if somebody is teaching falsely or if someone is in overt and obvious sin, then the Bible gives an obligation for us to help that person and further. 
The Bible says that to be willing to act upon that and help a brother or sister who are caught in sin is an act of love. Now, how do I know that? You know that multiple times in your Bible, there's this phrase, love covers what? Love covers a multitude of sins. So very often that is used to say, look, sweep it under the rug. Don't worry about it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I do believe, I do believe that there is a legitimate, uh, there are legitimacy to not being so thin-skinned that you're offended easily. And so in that sense, love covering a multitude of sins, I'm not going to dwell on it, and I'm not going to allow it to affect my relationship with this person. But if it's harming them, if they're doing something habitually that's harming them, I love them, and I want to see that, that change, okay? So love covers a multitude of sins, but sometimes that love is demonstrated by you being willing to do the hard thing and go to a brother and sister and say, you're doing this, and the Bible says you shouldn't be doing it. That's the love that covers a multitude of sins. How do I know that? James chapter 5, James 5, 19 and 20. James 5, 19 and 20. James says in verse 19, He who brings a brother back from the error of his way will save him from death and covers over, it says this, and covers over a multitude of sins. Now, it doesn't use the word love in that one. It doesn't say love covers a multitude of sins. It says bringing the guy back from the error of his way. In other words, James is saying sometimes that love that covers over a multitude of sins takes the form of bringing somebody back from the error of their way. That's a loving thing to do. But I can never do that loving thing if I first can't see that where you're going is the wrong direction. And making a judgment about that. So the Bible does not condemn all judgment, only certain kinds of judgment, hypocritical judgment. Now, Notice how I keep saying this. I say, if someone is teaching falsely or engaged in overt and obvious sin, I, can't, I don't have warrant to judge someone because I think they might be. I can't draw a conclusion about what someone is doing just because it doesn't look right to me. If it doesn't look right to me, then I can go to them and say, hey, this was going on. I'm just concerned there might be more to it. That'd be legitimate for you to do. But you can't draw a conclusion on that. But if you see someone with someone who's not their spouse in a one-on-one setting, in a touchy-feely kind of relationship, yeah, that you need to make a judgment about that. Now, I don't know how far that relationship has gone, but I know that it's gone this far, and I know that's inappropriate, and I know that's wrong. And I've had to confront people about that kind of thing. And I can't conclude where that went, and I'm very careful not to conclude that. I'm just going to deal with the facts at my disposal and say, this is what I saw. And you're a married man, and you can't be doing that. 
So I'm making an evaluation on something that's obvious and something that's overt, but I'm not going beyond what the facts, what the facts warrant. But when now, back to motivations. When I see someone engage in a good act or an otherwise neutral act, a good act or an otherwise neutral act, if they're dealing in something that is a sinful act, they're with someone that's not their spouse behaving in a way that they shouldn't, that's a sinful act. And they shouldn't be doing that. And I need to call them on that. But if I see them um, talking to some people in the hallway, but they're not talking to some other people, now what can I conclude about that? You know what the answer is? Here's what you can conclude. They're talking to some people, and they're not talking to those other people. That's all you can conclude. Now, if in your mind you go, oh, well, I know why they're talking to those people. Because those are their favorite people. They always talk to their favorite people. They're all about their favorite people. And the reason they're not talking to those people is because those people are beneath them. Okay, I got your number. Now, see, they, that person hasn't committed a sinful act. That person is committing actually a good act by engaging with people. Or an otherwise neutral act, but you're applying a motivation to that. Now, let me ask you. Might your judgment, your sinful judgment, might it turn out that that was right? It's possible it will. And that's actually one of the worst things that can possibly happen to you. Is that that thing that you sinfully judge their motivation on turns out to be correct. You know why that's the worst thing that can happen? It's because now you are convinced that you are a psychic You are a psychic for Jesus, man. And you know what people are up to. I'm telling you, and I've had people tell me this, Pastor, I'm telling you, I know, I just got to think, I just know what people are up to. Not in our church, years ago, I had a guy tell me, I can tell what somebody is like when I shake their hand. I'm not shaking your hand. What do you think of that? <laughs> what motivation are you getting out of that? Now, you could just make a, an infinitely long list of things that you observe about somebody, and then in your mind the wheels start turning, and you start drawing conclusions. And friends, this is what I'm telling you in this lesson. God calls us to think truthfully, and God calls us to think humbly. And that humility means I have to be willing to admit that most of the time... When somebody, forget most of the time, all of the time, when someone is engaged in a good or otherwise neutral act, I do not know their motivations. And I will leave to God Almighty what those motivations are. we got to quit because I'm a few minutes after. But I'll tell you something. If you're worried, like, wow, what am I going to do with myself if I don't judge what people are doing? I mean, what am, what's there going to be left to, like, think? What am I going to be able to do in, in engaging in ministry to, to people? Can I, can I fill you in on something? Listen, there's enough obvious sin in our lives for us to deal with without us being sin sniffers. 
and sniffing sin where you don't know it's there. There's enough sin in this room to keep us all busy for the rest of our lives. And you're going to need help from time to time in sin, real life sin that you're struggling with. And I'm going to need help with real life sin that I'm struggling with. Let's focus on that without looking at the good things that someone does or the otherwise neutral things and then applying the most negative interpretation to that. God says you don't have the ability to do that. Have the humility to agree with God in the way you think. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the faculty of the mind that you have bestowed upon the highest of your creatures, humanity. Lord, you've given us our minds so that we can interact with you and interact like you. Our minds are not to be autonomous. Our minds are not to be used in the way we want to use them, but rather we're to think your thoughts after you. And so, Lord, help us then to, as we've sought to do in these four weeks, think about our thinking. Help us, Lord, to see the error of our thoughts in the recesses of our minds and how we have violated your word and how we have proudly usurped your role in drawing conclusions and assigning motivations when your word tells us we can't know that. So, Lord, help us to have the humility to then refrain and to leave to you who alone can judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Leave that to you. Lord, there's so much sin that we struggle with. Overt sin in our words and in our actions to keep me busy in the lives of brothers and sisters and them with me. And Lord, help us to have the trust in you that you will take care of the things we don't know that you don't know it need me to be finding sin where I can't see it. That you have a way of revealing the things that are going on in hearts in your timing. And in your way and for your purposes. So help us, Lord, to have the humility to leave to you what only you can do. And the trust in you to believe that you will do in your timing what needs to be done. Then may we clean our minds and focus our minds on the things that you have assigned to us and thereby use them for the purpose for which our minds were given, thinking your thoughts after you. Help us to do that this coming week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.